my mic? Yes. Now I can hear you. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I can hear you now. Uh, welcome back. That that that's all salutation there. Welcome back to the show, sir. Um, now, first off, uh, for those who don't know who you are, I think everybody does, but uh, give them a little background on you at the top here. Yeah. Well, um, uh, I received a PhD in American literature. Uh, in 1979 at Temple University, got a job as a professor at St. Mary's College, got fired one year later because I was against abortion, started a magazine, which is now called Culture Wars, and I've been writing that and a series of books for the past 40-some years. The latest book is The Holocaust Narrative, uh, which is uh, about uh, where that story came from, how it developed, and how it gets used or weaponized uh, to justify just about anything. Now, okay, so tell me a little bit more about what got you writing this book. Um, and that's the main thing we're going to talk about here tonight is your new book. Uh, I do want to ask you about Israel and Gaza and a couple other things later, but um, what got you on the path of writing this book in the first place? Like, why did you think it was necessary? Because you're constantly confronted with uh, Holocaust stories and then you're told you're not allowed to talk about them. That's kind of contradictory, you know? Uh, so it started back, uh, you know, I remember writing about uh, Spielberg's uh, movie Munich, uh, then thinking about Schindler's List. And it's one thing after another. If you're, you're constantly having this thrown in your face, and then you're constantly told you just have to shut up and, and, uh, and not talk about it. So I thought, well, no, I, that doesn't make any sense. And so uh, I became more and more involved in it, wrote various articles for Culture Wars, and I began to see that there was a book for me. If there's anything uh, that precipitated, it was just this constant refrain of invariably the Holocaust gets dragged into things where it doesn't really apply at all. The classic example was the Canadian trucker strike protest uh, in Ottawa. What's this got to do with the Holocaust? This is a COVID-related issue. The truckers couldn't get into the United States, were not earning money, wanted to have the government give them some sense of when this was, the lockdown was going to be over. They drive to Ottawa, and then suddenly someone accuses them of being a Nazi. Nazis. What do they have to do about Nazis? A lady uh, wrote a book just recently called uh, The Hategate Affair. Two Canadian ladies wrote this book, and they explained how this happened. There's a guy named uh, Bernie Farber, a Jew from Canada who uh, ran, uh, created this this NGO called the uh, Canada Canadians Against Hate uh, Network, uh, and uh, he shows up at the trucker uh, convoy, and someone hands him a flyer. He says, "A friend handed me a flyer." The flyer is something saying that basically uh, the media are controlled by Jews in America. Well, the truckers didn't do that. This flyer came from Florida. I think it was the Goyim Defense League that handed it out in Florida. Someone brings it up to Canada, puts it near a truck, and immediately those truckers are anti-Semites and Nazis. And at that point, the uh, one of the members of parliament in Canada stands up. Yara Sachs, he's a Jewish lady member of parliament. She stands up and says, I have relatives who died in the Holocaust. Now, how many, how many conversations begin with this? What it means is you just better shut up and do what I say. And then she says, honk, honk equals Heil Hitler. That's a direct quote. 
that what she meant is there the Canadian truckers were beeping, but every time they beeped their horn, they were really saying Heil Hitler. What happens then? Well, the Canadian government uh, freezes their bank accounts because they are Nazis. And once you invoke the Holocaust, there is no limit to what the government can do uh, uh, to you. No limit. Canada's proof of that. We have somewhat more protection here, but uh, that may change. <laughs> Uh, because we just had the most comprehensive government, U.S. government document on anti-Semitism in the history of the United States, uh, guided through uh, committees by Deborah Lipstadt, who created this imaginary crime called Holocaust denial. So if these people have their way, you will have no defense. Whenever some Jew wants to get rid of you, whenever some politician wants to get rid of you, all they have to do is put a flyer near you you're condemned to be a Nazi and you've lost all of your uh, civil rights. You've lost your right to speech. You lost your right to have a bank account. That happened. And I'm saying it's time that we have to stop. We have to stop this weaponization of this Holocaust thing. And the best way to stop it is to look into how it came into existence, how it was used, and how it, it can be uh, thwarted by understanding those things. So we had Ron Unz on uh, last week, last Thursday, I think, uh, and we talked a little bit about this. And he said that basically the Holocaust narrative, and I think he even used that term uh, that you used for the title of your book, he, he basically said that it didn't really get started until the 60s uh, with Hollywood and fetishizing that kind of. Um, is that true for to ask one thing, and then um, if not, how did it like start to get crystallized in the media and mainstream? Okay, if you're talking about the term Holocaust, I think he's right, but it's not the 60s, it was the 70s. There was a mini-series in the 70s, and it was called The Holocaust. Now, uh, be, be, that's, so if you're talking about the actual term, I think that's when it became commonly known. That's when you described what happened in concentration camps as the Holocaust. The, the, that removed all ambiguity from around what happened there. If you're talking about the narrative itself, uh, then you have to go back farther because it started uh, right after, uh, toward the end or the middle of World War II. Middle of World War II, let's say, the uh, Polish government in exile is in London and they are uh, in close collaboration with the BBC, which is sending propaganda broadcast into uh, occupied Poland at this point. And the stories uh, start circulating that uh, the, the Jews are being rounded up and gassed. Uh, this became part of the narrative. Now, that's not Holocaust. Holocaust means burnt whole. So the gas narrative is not really, doesn't really fit in with the term, but uh, over a period of time, it did. So at that point, there's a, a what they, one of the authors called a feedback loop. Uh, they start, BBC starts broadcasting this in Polish, uh, to the, in Polish language, to the, in Poland. That generates more stories, and the stories, this, this whole narrative takes on a life of its own. Uh, then it continues uh, with the end of the war. Yeah, uh, General Eisenhower arrives at a camp called Ordruf, that nobody really knows about anymore. Uh, uh, and he goes in, and there are dead bodies all over the ground. Okay, that's a reality. I, no, no one can deny that reality. There are pictures of it. 
But what, our, what Eisenhower saw at this point was an opportunity to deflect attention from his participation in war crimes, uh, the American participation in war crimes, the, bomb, the uh, bombing campaigns against civilians, but also Eisenhower's uh, behavior with the, the Rheinwiesen Lager, which is the camps that he set up on the Rhine where he deliberately starved German soldiers to death by not declaring them prisoners of war. So what you have to do to create uh, propaganda, a propaganda narrative, is you take the fact, which is a category of reality, and then you impose a category of the mind on it to give it meaning, uh, except that in this instance it didn't work because there were no gas chambers in Ordruf. There was no way to exterminate people in Ordruf. And so the question is, well, how'd they die? Well, they died of typhus. There's no other explanation for their death in Ordruf. That's not going to run. That's not going to make, uh, that's not going to divert people's attention. Eisenhower said at this point, maybe now the American soldier knows why he's fighting. Well, that leads me to believe that there was doubt in their mind about the way the war was being conducted and so on and so forth. These doubts were shared by people like General Patton at a certain point who felt that, uh, that he sided with the wrong people. He felt that the German people were superior to the Soviet and Russians who had just come into the country. But that's that's when it started uh, in, in earnest after the war. And then it was, the next camp was Buchenwald. At that point... Uh, Eisenhower called in General McClure, head of psychological warfare, and C.D. Jackson held up this little dog and pony show, holding up a, a, a pelvis, human pelvis, which he said the Nazi used as an ashtray, two shrunken heads, and a lampshade made out of human skin. This is all made up. Nobody in their right mind thinks that Germans shrink heads. They were taken from a museum of, where, uh, as an exhibit of Amazonian culture where they do shrink heads. But this is the type of, at this point, psychological warfare is involved in this thing. And then at this point, at a certain point, it continues along this line and takes on a life of its own. Now, uh, you mentioned the ways that the, the Holocaust is used to justify things or just divert discussion. Um, what are some of the major examples, I guess, of the way the Holocaust, Holocaust is used uh, for political gain and expediency, et cetera? Well, look at what's happening with the war right now. I mean, the, the Israeli war. First, the, the Holocaust was used to justify the foundation of the state of Israel. There's no question about that. Uh, the Jews were major partners in this operation because they controlled Hollywood, and that was the propaganda ministry of the United States of America. So it was used to justify Israel, and now you've got people, uh, people, uh, who are now saying Ben Shapiro just gave, gave this huge thing. He mentions the Holocaust. Now, what the Holocaust does here is divert your attention from the reality of the situation, which is that basically the Jews have behaved abominably ever since they, uh, they went to Israel after the war and started uh, in on the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people. It immediately excludes the Palestinian people from the equation as soon as you bring the Holocaust in. That's what's happening right now as we speak. More Jews have died this past weekend than at any time since the Holocaust. Okay? Anthony Blinken, Merrick Garland, 
the attorney general gets called in to the Senate. Uh, Josh Hawley starts saying, why are you going after Catholics? I didn't do that. Well, yes, you did. Here's the proof that you did it. And then the representative from New Jersey goes after him again. What does Merrick Garland say when he's caught uh, not doing his job? He has totally weaponized the Justice Department. We have political prosecutions where Jewish criminals get off the hook, but Catholics go to uh, or get tried uh, for being pro-life. What happened in Pennsylvania, what Mark House. So what does Mark Island say when they press him to the wall? Do you know what he says? I have relatives who died in the Holocaust. This is, this is the universal get out of jail card for every Jewish enterprise. Whenever they get caught not doing their job or engaging in some type of criminal activity, they can always say, I have relatives who died in the Holocaust, and that completely derails any type of uh, prosecution. Now, what do you say? Is it so? Did you ever have thoughts about writing the book or not writing it? Like, it is kind of a, a, a touchy subject, I guess, but times are kind of. Uh, I guess, ripe for, for that sort of thing these days. But um, did you worry about writing uh, a book specifically about the Holocaust, that it would, like, affect your platforming ability and stuff like that? No, I was uh, – I the uh, Handsome Truth had me on Goyang TV, mm-hmm. and it is, in his crude kind of way, he says to me, let's just cut to the chase. How many Jews died in World War II? And I said, I'm not going to answer that question. And now he's right rerunning. He's like, see, he's a he's a wimp. He's a hey, look at that guy. He does ah, blah blah blah. Well, wait a minute, handsome. Uh, maybe I should do some research before I answer that question. Maybe that's what I was trying to tell you. If you didn't want to jump down my throat, and that's what I did. I did the research because I think the time is is right. We have to deal with this now because if we don't, it will destroy whatever we have left of the rule of law. It's that simple. This Holocaust narrative has created a group of people who are above the law, whether it comes to uh, retaliating against uh, Palestinians, which is what uh, Dove Fisher in a supposedly conservative magazine, The American Spectator, said uh, they all deserve to be exterminated. He keeps using words like exterminate when it comes to Palestinians without any sense that this is the, the way they talked about Hitler. This is, the, this, is, this is the irony, and the irony has become too big to ignore, and I thought, well, we've got to write something about it. So if you're asking me if I feel confident, if I'm worried, I'm, I'm not worried. I, I have a PhD. I told you this at the beginning. I have a PhD in American literature. I am trained to read literature. And what this is, is a series of literary criticism about various documents that have created this narrative. It doesn't go any farther than that. These are documents that were used to create a narrative for a political purpose. And I think I have a right to examine these documents, like Elie Wiesel's Night or Painted Bird by Yeshi Kaczynski, Schindler's List, and so on and so forth. Why can't I talk about that? I think you can. I'm, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just wondering. You know, I've seen people, you know, get uh, taken down. I guess or like, you know, their channel shut down or this or that. So that's why I ask it. But yeah, I, I mean, I think as far as I'm concerned, you can. Uh, now, give me some examples, I guess, of like 
you, you mentioned some of the works there, but maybe like some of the, I guess, misconceptions uh, about these documents or what people think is the official story, but what's actually not without giving the whole book away, of course, but maybe uh, a couple examples if you, if you have some. Well, okay. Let's, let's be, let's be serious here. Now the, uh, Debbie Lipstadt is this professor of Holocaust studies. She created uh, this imaginary crime called Holocaust denial. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Did, did, did I, did I just engage in Holocaust denial? Did I, did I say that those corpses on the ground did not exist? I'm talking about a narrative that got imposed on those cor uh, corpses. Is that Holocaust denial? Or let's, let's be even more specific now. Anthony Blinken, okay, after that thing I said, I just mentioned, the most comprehensive document on anti-Semitism ever in the history of the United States of America got issued in May of this year. And uh, about two weeks later, he issued uh, a video uh, was published by the world Jewish Congress in which he said, I have relatives who died in the Holocaust. I have matter of fact, my stepfather was in a concentration camp. And not only that, this is a, this is a really interesting story. My stepfather was rescued by a black tank battalion. <laughs> wow. Now this is, a, this is a really moving story. And he goes on like he was in the woods. He hears this rumbling. He looks up, there's a tank, but it's got a white star on it. So he rushes out of the woods and he falls down on his knees and says the only three words he knows in English, God bless America. And at that point, the hatch of the tank opens and this black dude comes out and he's Blinken says, and he lifted my stepfather up into the tank, into America and into freedom. Well, that's a, that's a really touching story. There's only one problem here. It could not have happened. It was impossible, impossible because there was only one tank, uh, battalion, Negro tank battalion it was the seven sixty first, and it was never near Penzing, which was southwest of Dachau, uh, when uh, Pizar, his stepfather, was there. Now, wait a minute. This is, I kept thinking when I saw this, I, I, this reminds me of something. Well, not only is it crazy, but it already happened. It happened in the early 1990s. This story got circulated back then. This is after Pizar wrote his memoir. Pizar is excluded from the story. Now we got a different situation. Okay. Now uh, there's problems in Brooklyn because the Messiah, uh, the Jewish Messiah in his motorcade ran a red light and killed a black kid. There are riots in Crown Heights. And the, the people at NPR are really upset. And they say, wait a minute, I know how we can do this. Let's talk about the 761st, the Negro Tank Battalion, and how they liberated Dachau. Well, that's even a more touching story, but it's every bit as absurd as the first story. Do you know who exposed that story? After everybody fell over each other, they're hugging all these Negroes and Jews are hugging each other and crying and Wonderful story. It was the American Jewish Committee that exposed the story and said that, that could never have happened. Now, let's go back to what I just said. Is that Holocaust denial? Did I just engage in Holocaust denial? I don't think so, no. 
Well, the question is when it depends on when I said it. Suppose I said it 15 minutes before the American Jewish Committee came out debunking it. That would have been Holocaust. I could have gone to jail in Germany for doing that. Oh, wait a minute. It's not true. So I said at the I did this is the article I published on Un's Review. It's the first chapter in the book. And I said, look, if you're going to have Holocaust denial as a crime, we have to have a crime called Holocaust lying. How about if we have a trial? Uh, how about if we have a law that says any falsification of the Holocaust is criminal behavior, is a crime? Now, that would change the whole situation, wouldn't it? Because at this point, we could drag Anthony Blinken into a court for lying about the Holocaust. He lied about that. He knew it wasn't true. It's a great story, but it wasn't true. Because what has happened to our culture over this period of time? Truth has become the opinion of the powerful. And so if some powerful Jewish organization says it, it's true, period, even if it's false. The New York Times says it, it's true. There's a whole chapter on the New York Times and Yeshi Kaczynski's book, The Painted Bird, how that blew up in their face. But this is the what happened to our culture over this period of time. Truth is no longer a defense because truth is the opinion of the powerful. That means you have no rights. That means Debbie Lipscott can throw you to, into jail if she had her way, if you were living in Germany, for example, for saying that something never happened that never happened. I keep referring to the Ron Unz interview because he was here last week and he said that that was the... <laughs> That was the writer that actually got him to start criticizing or, you know, rethinking the the Holocaust narrative on his own because she was so she's supposed to be like this great Holocaust writer. But he's, he said she was so bad, basically. Uh, there was so much uh, falsity in there. Uh, any thoughts on uh, Lipstadt just in general as a writer? Well, what, what did she? Yeah. What did she write? What, wait a minute. If where's the definitive uh, story. Where's the definitive history that Debbie Lichtstadt is supposed to write? You know why she, every, she's famous? Because she won a libel suit against David Irving. She's written two books about that. She once uh, came to Notre Dame and talked, uh, called uh, David Irving a piece of dog shit. That was really endearing. I mean, the, the audience really got on her side when she said that. Uh, what has she done? All she is is a commissar. She's not a professor. She doesn't believe in uh, working hard to uncover the truth. She believes in punishing people that she doesn't like. And one of them was a guy who wrote for us, a uh, professor of French literature by the name of O'Connell, wrote an article for Culture Wars basically explaining who wrote Ailey Wiesel's book, Night. It wasn't Ailey Wiesel. Uh, because he was, uh, as a professor of French literature, he understood that uh, it was Francois Moliac. Elie Wiesel wrote a memoir in Yiddish, uh, a big memoir, like 600 pages, called Und die Welt hat geschwiegen, and the world remained silent. And in that memoir, he'd say things like about how we Jews went and raped German girls. And Elie, uh, Francois Moliac eliminated those parts and basically wrote a, a book uh, called La Nuit, Night in Elegant French. He'd already won the Nobel Prize for French in French literature. 
That's the story. So we published that. Guess what uh, Debbie Lipstadt does? She goes after O'Connell and tries to get him fired because he's at a, another uh, university in, in Georgia, not far from where she is, Emory. And so she causes a big uh, rigmarole because she can throw her weight around because she's important because she's a Jewish commissar. And Jews are always right because they begin every discussion with, I have relatives who died in the Holocaust. But it goes to a committee and the committee looks over the work and they vindicate O'Connell and says there's nothing wrong with this. Well, she lost because there was still some remnant of uh, intellectual respectability at the University of uh, uh, Georgia. Not because of Debbie Lipstadt. She wants, she'll go after you. She'll try to destroy you if you do something she doesn't like. No one should have this power. That's why we have the rule of law to protect you against ideologues like Debbie Lipstadt, who tries to destroy your career because you don't say what she wants you to say. That's intolerable. It's got to stop. Now, uh, back to the Holocaust narrative itself. How have they, or how has the narrative, um, I guess, gotten stronger in the media? And then how, I guess, how, I guess you could say how they gotten away with it um, uh, in terms of being able to use it like this. Like, who's to blame for this? Are politicians or, or just, you know, the Israel lobby itself? Well, no, that's, I mean, I go in this to in fairly great detail. So uh, let's go to like uh, Yeshi Kaczynski wrote the painted bird uh, uh, said it was the, you know, was uh, how did he get into a position where he's getting top New York publishing houses publishing his work? Well, there were CIA connections there. Uh, he had come from Poland. Uh, how, how did, how did this happen? Uh, he, there was a New York literary establishment. You know, I mean, you, New Yorker magazine, if you know about yeah. that, yeah. you'd have p people like John Updike, a famous novelist who would write, got to start writing for New Yorker. And there's kind of like a pantheon of these are accept accepted writers. These are the great novelists of our day. Uh, it used to be people like William Faulkner, you know, John Steinbeck, and then a new generation comes along and Faulkner anoints uh, William Styron as his successor. Uh, there's Southern Gothic fiction. That's kind of his genre and so on and so forth. And we have this kind of literary establishment. Well, at this point, the Jews take it over using the Holocaust. And Yeshi Kaczynski was one of the first guys to do this. This is, again, in the book, all you have to do is read Styron's novel, Sophie's Choice. And you have a, a blow by blow description of how the Jews took over the literary world and corrupted it. Because at this point, you know, pen, uh, poets, essayists, and novelists, it's like the Politburo, uh, New York Politburo. It was created in the 20s to imitate the, what was going on in the Soviet Union. These were the people, the, the nomenclatura, the elite people who were the guardians of the literary culture in our society. Okay. Uh, they had, at the beginning, truth was part of what they were involved in. By the time Yeshi Kaczynski was made head of this operation, they had to admit the fact that it was a complete imposter. This man did not write that book. This man could hardly put two sentences together in English, and he won the Pulitzer Prize because the Jews had taken over literary culture in this country. 
and they were using the Holocaust to enforce that narrative on everyone else. That So if you want to talk about how it happened there, it was the total collapse of the people in Penn, the total collapse of the literary establishment. They ran up the white flag and said, yep, the, the Jews run this operation. We can't object to anything they say. Now, how big was Hollywood in all this, um, and how has the traditional uh, Zionist control of Hollywood, I guess, been a been a great tool for uh, the Zionist narrative? I guess you could say. If you want to know that story, you have to go back to the 1930s, which is when uh, just about everybody in America was upset with Hollywood because they were promoting nudity, blasphemy, ridicule of the clergy, and they tried to get uh, Hayes, the former postmaster general, to do something. The Protestants failed, and at that point, the Catholics stepped up to the plate at a crucial moment, and the crucial moment being basically Hollywood it went into debt in 1929 to finance talking pictures at the very moment the stock market crashes. And now they got to pay back this debt with deflated dollars, uh, and they're in a bad they're in bad shape. And Anthony, nobody the 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 head of the Bank of America is an Italian Catholic. He's not going to roll over these loans. Uh, they're in trouble. And at this very moment, the Catholics struck and said, "We're going to organize a boycott of Hollywood films because you can't talk to these Jews. All they know is power." Man by Joe Breen, who was the 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 Catholic guy who was pushing this said these people are, he wrote a letter, it's always used to, to show that Joe Breen is an anti-Semite, but he said these are Eastern European Jews who are only interested in sex and making money. They're the scum of the earth. That's uh, But they were vulnerable at that point, and so they accepted this thing called the production code, which is basically no nudity, no blasphemy, and so on and so forth. That production code lasted for 31 years, um, 34 to 65. 65 the Jews, the Jews have hated this code for a long time. Let's say 47, uh, they're talking about in uh, the nation, left-wing Jewish magazine. Who gave these Catholics the right to tell us what kind of films we make? The moment of opportunity came in 1965, which is when the Jews brought out, guess what? A Holocaust film. It's called The Pawnbroker. Was the point of this to show the suffering of Jews during the Holocaust? No, the point of this film was to break the production code by showing bare breasts on the big screen. That was the whole point of this film. A uh, black prostitute takes off her shirt, shows bare breasts. That broke the code. At this point, it was the Catholics' duty to come in and say, all right, we're boycotting. Whoever did, whoever, we're going to boycott this film. We're going to boycott Hollywood. And by this time, they had lost their nerve because of the Second Vatican Council. Pawnbroker came out in the same year uh, uh, the Second Vatican Council ended. They had just passed this thing called Nostra Aetate, which said that the Jews uh, were, you know, we got to have a different relationship with the Jews. They're our elder brothers. That didn't happen at that point, but that's the way to, later way they described it. And so they lost their nerve, and Hollywood won. They broke the code, and from that point, it was clear sailing to total control of the media, which is where we stand right now, except for the Internet where there's a battle going on. Obviously, I'm talking about Elon Musk and the whole band, the hashtag band the L, band the ADL controversy. 
Now, what role, you mentioned the ADL, and I want to ask about them uh, anyway. Uh, what role has the ADL played? And you could uh, talk about the Ben, the ADL thing, too, if you want, like some things you've seen from that movement. The ADL uh, are the thought police. They have now, their big moment came in 2000, I believe it was 2019, when they invented this, this uh, imaginary category called hate speech. Uh, what is hate speech? Hate speech is anything Jews don't like. Anything the ADL doesn't like. Anytime you expose a Jewish criminal or, or something that they don't want you to talk about, they will call you uh, a hater and they'll, they will try to get you deplatformed. And they were successful. This happened uh, across the board. I was uh, kicked off of Twitter during this hate speech campaign. And then Elon Musk buys it. Elon Musk has a different point of view. Elon Musk is a big, heavy hitter. He's a billion, billion, billionaire. And he comes, he buys Twitter, and now he suddenly realizes the ADL is trying to destroy it. What did he do to deserve that? And so the resentment is building, and suddenly he's got, uh, gives amnesty after he buys the thing, and I'm back on Twitter now. The Jews are using me as a hammer. They are saying specifically text to Elon Musk. E. Michael Jones is a, a raving anti-Semite. Uh, if you don't take him off, there will be dire consequences. Uh, he put me back on and I've been on ever since because he's had the stature, the power to stand up to the ADL, which was the main group orchestrating this thing. And so the Keith Woods uh, starts talking about something related suddenly there's a hashtag ban the adl and the turn the crucial moment came when elon musk jumped into the discussion and said the adl has been trying to destroy me ever since i bought twitter and that it, it, it's lost 22 billion dollars in value well then it really blew up and suddenly you had this all of this pent-up resentment bursting like a dam burst and hundreds of thousands of people it's the number one trend on on twitter at this point because of the resentment that all of these people felt at this threat, that this tiny minority of people has the power to destroy you, to deplatform you, to keep you from earning a living. And I'm saying this is analogous to what happened, just happened in, in Gaza. You have this, I don't know what happened. We, we, we will sort it out. There's a story that just came out that uh, Hamas decapitated yeah. 22 babies. 22 babies. Can you believe that? Wait, what, what, what kind of what kind of monsters are these people? God, like little babies. God, I, I feel like crying. Oh, wait a minute. I, I've been down this road before. This is exactly what they said about Saddam Hussein and Kuwait. Remember that? Hill and Knowlton, the public relations firm, had the uh, Iraqis taking babies out of incubators and throwing them on the floor. This is the type of crap. Get the type of propaganda that gets generated when the Jews get hysterical and feel threatened. This is the type of thing that's happening right now. Okay. That's why I'm I'm reluctant to to comment on things like, but I'm going to comment on this. I that is made up. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Israeli military just issued a statement saying it never happened. So keep that in mind. Okay. That's the type of thing we're being subjected to right now.
Yeah, and I, st- I talked about that a little bit earlier. 22, 40, whatever they said it was, uh, it just didn't sound uh, realistic at all. I didn't realize that uh, it had been clarified. I saw Charlie Kirk spreading the story and then saying, well, maybe misinformation um, or this or that. Where do you see it going uh, in Israel? Uh, well, in Palestine, uh, should I say. What do you think the uh, Zionist government's going to do in response? Are they actually going to go there? Um, on the ground. I think I saw a tweet from you. That's, and I said the same thing the other night. I think Israel may be getting lulled into something uh, here, too, if they go into Gaza too heavy on the ground. Um, I don't know. Just your thoughts on that. Yeah, so you have the first stage where Hamas breaks out. They they attack certain cities. They take hostages. They bring them back. And then there's the reaction. The Israelis drive them back into Gaza. They seal the fence. Uh, and in the meantime, there's all this aerial bombardment. Well, you've seen, you've probably seen the videos of the tanks. They're on these semi-trailers. All the tanks are heading to Gaza. Well, what, what's, what's next? These are huge tanks. The Merkava tank, it's a huge tank. The tank was created uh, during the late part of World War I as the antidote to the machine gun because there was a machine gun stalemate at that point. Both sides had machine guns. They're dug into trenches. Nobody can resolve this issue. You need some uh, weapon. The tank was the weapon that will resolve that issue. The bullets bounce off. It's got a big gun. Blow up the machine gun. That's take care of it. That's not the mission in Gaza. What we have here is a situation where the tank is virtually meaningless. Okay, you're going to go into one of the most densely populated pieces of real estate on the planet, if not the most densely populated place. Uh, You're going into narrow streets along which you have high rise buildings, five, six story buildings. That tank cannot maneuver in a situation like that. It's got a big gun. What's that big gun going to do? Fire at a building? You've already done that. Not only are these narrow streets, these streets are now bomb craters in them, and they're full of rubble. What's that tank going to do? What's that tank going to do? That tank is going to get blown up. I'm, I'm willing to bet on that. I'm not a betting man, but I will bet on that because I've seen what has happened in the past. 2006, the Israelis invaded uh, Lebanon. They got 500 yards in it. They were stopped dead in their tracks with their big tanks by 1,500 uh, Hezbollah soldiers because the Hezbollah soldiers had rockets. Uh, The Russians had given them rockets, and those rockets destroyed the tank. That was the answer. Just as the tank is the answer to the machine gun, the rocket is the answer to the tank. And the rockets are a lot cheaper than the tank. And they're a lot more portable. And you can have people, you know, the Hamas, they're going to come out. There are tunnels when, when the Israelis are dropping bombs on Gaza, they're killing civilians. They know that. Hamas is dug into tunnels. They were in tunnels. Uh, Hezbollah was in tunnels in Lebanon. Hamas is in tunnels under there. These bombs are not going to affect that at all. And then the big moment of cut will come. Those Israeli tanks will rumble into Gaza and they will be annihilated by the missiles that Hamas has waiting for them. That's my prediction. I don't have a crystal ball. I'm just telling you there are certain dynamics about the weaponry here that you have to respect if you want to understand any possible outcome.
And I think that's going to be the outcome of this will be phase three now of this war. Have you ever seen anything quite like the bloodthirsty tweets that we've seen uh, about the Palestinians? I mean, the just flat out calling for genocide, basically. Um, yeah. Have you seen anything quite like this before? No. Who, who else? Who else has the, the privilege to talk this way? This is Jewish privilege. The closest thing you can come to it is black privilege because the Jews delegate that to them or some type of university where homosexuals have privilege, but this is Jewish privilege. No one can talk about calling for the extermination of these people, which is what Ben Shapiro is talking. Hey, a conservative, Dove Fisher, another so-called conservative, calling for the extermination of a group of people. Wait a minute, don't you remember that this is the allegation you uh, alleged against the Nazis? How are you different? How, how are these Jews any different than the Nazis? Explain that to me. How is this? This is worse than what the Nazis did to the Warsaw Ghetto. And, and, and they're saying they're excused from the moral law because they have Jewish privilege, because they begin every, every discussion with, I have relatives who died in the Holocaust. This has got to stop. We can't have this this privileged group of people destroying the rule of law and threatening the lives of everyone else, either literally in Gaza or economically in places like the United States through deep platform. It's got to stop. By the way, if you have any questions, super chat those in. Uh, I think we'll keep, uh, if, if he's good, about 20 more minutes. We'll do an hour here. Um, now, let me ask you a little bit about Nakam. I think that's how you say that. Uh, but I saw you tweeting about it a little bit. If, I know you wrote a lot about it in your book, but uh, for people who don't know what that is, and I wasn't super familiar with it, what, what is Nakam? It was a so after World War II is our first of all, World War II starts, the Nazi takeover, or the Jews all leave. Okay. Now they're coming back and they want vengeance. 70% of the lawyers at the Nuremberg trial were Jews, and they wanted vengeance. And Nakam is the Jewish word for vengeance. And so there's a group uh, who's come back. Now, this is this is not me, okay? This is a movie now. It's called Plan A, about how a group of Jews called Nakam have come back to Germany, and they're going to poison the water supply of Nuremberg. Now, how's that for an inspirational movie? Remember all those so-called canards, as uh, Jonathan Greenblatt say, about Jews poisoning wells? in the Middle Ages? Well, here's a movie, Jews bragging about their desire to uh, poison the wells in Nuremberg, poison the water supply in Nuremberg. So it turns out uh, it's too much, well, that's too much. So what do they do? They, they poison the bread in a ger for Germans who were interned in a, a prison camp. And only, this is their term, they only a thousand Germans died of this poisoning. Now, what type of people are we talking about here? So at this point, they're ready to, they have, the Germans are completely prostrate. They are completely defeated and the Jews can do whatever they want to do. These are, Blinken's father talks about this in his memoir, how he was, he would basically use Jewish privilege, use that tattoo, the Auschwitz tattoo on his forearm to get whatever he wanted. And he became a, a pimp uh, offering starving German girls to black uh, uh, soldiers for a pack of cigarettes. This is the type of stuff that was going on there. Pizar, Blinken's 
stepfather is benign compared to the Nakam crowd who want to poison the entire water supply of Nuremberg. And the only thing that stops them is another group of Jews who come over from Israel. They say, well, just take it easy. There's no point dealing with the Germans anymore. Come to Israel and we'll take it out on the Palestinians. And that's exactly what happened. And the result was these terrorists basically murdering Palestinians all because of the Holocaust. What did the Palestinians have to do with the Holocaust? Nothing. It's the universal get out of jail card. It's the universal excuse for Jewish hegemony uh, and the destruction of people they don't like. They immediately engaged. We're talking about 1947-48 when you had Jewish terrorists who became prime minister, Itzhak uh, Shamir, Menachem Begin, both of them terrorists working for the Stern gang, killing Palestinians uh, uh, in places like the village of Deir Yasin with total impunity because they had the ultimate get out of jail card, which was called uh, the Holocaust. That's that's what Nakam was. And there's a whole chapter on that uh, in the book. Now, um, what about this idea that, uh, you know, only Hamas there has killed civilians or they're so barbaric? I, I had this clip uh, the other day. Um, where Israeli soldiers are laughing about how many. Now they, I guess it was during their terrorist days, but right before the Israeli army was created, they had went through and killed a bunch of children. And they asked the guy how many he had killed. And he said, well, I don't know. There was 250 bullets in my, <laughs> in my gun. So he was saying that he'd killed a lot, I guess. I don't know, full 250, but uh, a lot of people. Um, how... How is that narrative taking hold? I mean, you see that cited a lot with the oh, they they sacked this music festival and all this stuff. What do you what do you think about that particular narrative? I I don't know what happened at the music festival. I just saw a tweet that said that those people were caught in a crossfire. I don't know. I see videos. It's hard to say. I'm saying, look, this is always propaganda. You have an incident, you have a dead body, and then you start saying it was Hamas who did it. Well, I don't know. How do you know that that dead body is the result of that? We need some type of uh, examination into the facts. And that's precisely what's not going to happen in, in an atmosphere uh, like this. When you're the whole point of this is war hysteria. Lindsey Graham wants the United States to attack Iran. This is crazy stuff. We need to pull back from the from the uh, from the abyss here because we don't know the facts. We don't know. We don't know what happened. But if you're talking about what we do know, uh, we know that uh, the provocations that the Israelis have used, there's a uh, that going to the wall, peaceful demonstration where the Palestinians wanted to walk to this wall that's separating them, making it impossible to earn a living. The Israelis put snipers there and they, they shot whomever they wanted with no uh, no consequences. And then after that, they made T-shirts and it looks like two for one. And there's a pregnant Palestinian woman in the gun site. And the guy is bragging about the fact that he killed her and the child inside of her womb with one shot. Now, what type of people, where do these people get off uh, with their high moral dudgeon here, like Ben Shapiro, uh, uh, by completely ignoring all of the provocations that the Palestinian people had to put up with? Now, am I if there were an atrocity there, am I justifying an atrocity? No, I'm not. I am not. 
what I'm saying here is you keep that up and the anger will build over years and years and years of injustice. And the ra- anger will turn into rage. And you keep suppressing it and you think you're more powerful than they are. You just, root truth is the opinion of the powerful. You keep suppressing and the rage keeps building and suddenly it bursts. And there's this flood of people. You want to talk about the, the Palestinians? They burst through the fence that's been containing him in that concentration camp. They rush out. They're full of rage. And who knows what they're going to do? You don't want to have that situation because people under that circumstances, I suppose you put a gun in their hand, they're going to shoot somebody. Okay? Don't want it to get to that situation. But the point is, if you can't talk to people, you can't talk to people like Anthony Blinken, if every time you open your mouth, you're shouted down and deplatformed by the ADL as an anti-Semite, you, you, the ADL, are going to cause violence. It's that simple. Now, let me ask you a couple of these questions. Uh, let's see. Um, uh, thoughts on the Christian genocide in Armenia at the hands of the uh, Azerbaijanis um, while the West turned its back kind of on that? Yeah, Prashenia betrayed his own people for gain, aligned himself with the neocons, handed over a Nagorno-Karabakh. It's a, he's a traitor. This is what my Armenian f- friends are telling me. If you want the bigger picture of the Armenian genocide, there's a whole chapter in my book, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, on that, and how the Jewish revolutionary spirit was basically behind both sides of that genocide. This is a story that no one has ever told, both behind the Turks and behind the Armenians. Now, let's see. Um, Also, I saw... Oh, this is a question, I guess, about the Holocaust narrative. Um, uh, Thoughts on the... uh, Lecter report, uh, and then I have another question on that. But do you have any thoughts on that specifically? No, I we we I was going to collaborate with someone to do. Uh, we'd have co-author a book, and over the period of time, it, it real I realized it's not. There were two fundamentally different books, and so the second book is going to come out. It's called "The Truth Will Set You Free: The Case for Holocaust Revisionism," and that's the book that deals with all of the stuff that pe- most people associate with the Holocaust. The Leuchter Report is part of that. Uh, San, the beginning of this whole thing, the Zundel Trials, they're all all in that book, which will be coming out in early 2024. All right, now let's see. I also saw you tweeted about um, Modi in India today. I think he's done some suppressing of Christians too. Uh, thoughts on, on Modi in India, the Basically, yeah, the, 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 B, the BJP is based on Hindu fundamentalism and they have a group that backs them called the RSS. Uh, and uh, these people engage in attacks on Christians, Christian clergy, Christian nuns and Muslims with impunity. I was traveling through, traveled through India with a priest, friend of mine, Catholic priest, spent six weeks over there. And we heard lots of stories about just nuns being murdered, you know. Uh, Muslims are su- suspected of, uh, you know, having eating a cow or something like cow crimes. Yeah. They're lynched. They're lynched uh, without any any trial. This is the type of thing that this is the, the the Hindu fundamentalist base of of Modi's power. Yeah, and for those who don't know, they they think the cows. Um... I guess people are reincarnated in cows or something like that. Um, 
So they're sacred. I think most people probably know that. Um, now let's see. Okay, so back to your book, which has been the main topic. Um, what do you want people to to get out of your book, or what are some things um, or principles, whatever, that they might learn after reading it? Well, you'll know where it came from. Uh, once you know where this came from, how it came about, the purpose of it, uh, it loses its power because it's a taboo. Why is everyone so afraid? Because we live in a culture that is dominated by a taboo. A taboo is something you never question. So in, you know, you, you have cultures that, you know, this is the way we do it. It's taboo and you don't talk about it. That's not the basis for our culture. We believe that what Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And we have a group of people who are prohibiting any type of examination of the narrative that they use to control us. And that's an intolerable situation. And I hope that this leads to basically a, a, a discussion of where this power came from and ultimately the discussion of uh, who gave these people the right to destroy us. Who gave these people the right to ruin our lives because they don't like what we said? That is in, no one should have this power. And I'm hoping that we, the majority, there's all, the Jews are only 2% of the population, that the 98% majority can take back uh, the rule of law and say, no, you can't do this. We have to start with the nationalization of the internet. And what do I mean by that? It means that the rule of law has to be the basis for the internet. If it's not illegal, then you can't be banned for saying it. Now, um, let's see. Um, I was going to ask you, I, I guess, what are some reactions or notable reactions you've had to your book so far, good or bad, just um, or some things that struck you since it's been put out? Yeah, there's, been, there's one of the... The last chapter is about how the Holocaust narrative got, or the narrative got hijacked. This was a Catholic story. If you're as old as I am, you remember that Dachau was the paradigmatic concentration camp. Uh, a priest by the name of Johannes Lenz wrote a book on that, 1955, called Christus in Dachau, Christ in Dachau. Because there were so many Catholics there, and the Catholics were perceived as enemies of the state by the Nazi regime. Uh, that narrative was hijacked three years later when Elie Wiesel's book Night came out. It didn't happen immediately, but eventually the Jews stole the narrative, sidelined the Catholics, made it all about them. Uh, that's identity theft. Okay, and now the reaction, one of the early reactions I'm getting is people saying, well, the priests must have done something wrong because otherwise the Gestapo wouldn't have arrested them. This is preposterous. And part of what I'm trying to do is restore that original narrative, which isn't just, okay, we Catholics suffered uh, at Dachau. It's because that narrative had a meaning that also got stolen. The meaning was that suffering has a purpose. That's what these priests learned in Dachau, that they were there because God allowed these wicked men to, to torture them. Uh, but God was in control. And some of them died, but at a certain point, the turning point came, God answered their prayers, and uh, they were allowed to have these religious services because they were there to expiate the sin of godlessness. All of that got removed. That got erased from the narrative when Elie Wiesel's book came out, and it was called uh, The Message of 
night is God died at Auschwitz. It's propaganda for atheism. So now I have these Nazis, I don't know where the Nazis, but defending the Nazi regime and saying the Catholics must have done something wrong. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been arrested by the Gestapo. This is preposterous. And all you have to do is read the evidence in Christopher and Dachau. Now I found another memoir that corroborates everything I said there. So that's that's one of the initial reactions. Now, have you thought about following this up? Are you going to write more about the Holocaust, or do you think this is kind of your definitive? Uh, I don't. See, I don't see. I don't see any point to to writing about a, a, another book. I mean, I don't know what the yeah. future is going to bring. But I mean, if what I'm seeing here is, I would. I have been substantiated. The war in Gaza has substantiated what I said. All these people like Ben Shapiro are using the Holocaust to justify this absolutely barbaric treatment of the, the Palestinians. This bombing. This is a war crime. What is going on right now? The bombing of civilian populations is a war crime. And the Jews, the Israelis are committing this war crime. And they're using the Holocaust as an excuse to try and get out away from the moral responsibility that they bear as civilized human beings. We have to hold them accountable. And the main barrier to holding this group of people accountable is the Holocaust narrative. Now, what's the way, and I'll, I'll get you out of here, I guess, on this, but what's the way that, uh, you know, your rank-and-file viewer uh, could help fight? But getting your book, for one, for sure, getting studied up on the on the issue, but um, what can they do? Is it, you know, some of them kind of fear maybe their name being fear, on and stuff like that? Fear is useless. What is needed is love, and particularly love of the truth. And so I wrote this book to tell the truth because I believe that the truth is going to prevail in the end. That you can't, that the lie, you can have a lot of very rich people, uh, but if they're telling lies, it's going to fail. And I think we're watching the failure of a number of narratives right now. Israel, the American empire, the Holocaust narrative, all of these narratives, all of these stories are failing and they need to fail and they need to be replaced by the truth because the truth is great and it will prevail. So you can go to fidelitypress.org and buy a copy of this book and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Dr. E. Michael Jones, thank you so much for taking uh, the time tonight to come back on the kill stream and I appreciate it. And I wish you the best of luck with your book. Thank you. Right. Thanks for having me. Uh -huh. E. Michael Jones here. That was lovely. That Oh, shit, I muted myself. That was lovely, I have to say. And that was uh, that was another good interview in the books. If I do say so myself, I hope you thought so, too. Always, he's one of our best guests. Um, but also, I'm like, <laughs> he's so, like, on point that I'm almost... I'm a little bit more gunshot. I thought I got some good questions in, but um, you kind of can just set him up, let him go. Those are the best type of guests uh, for me, from my perspective, because it works better with my style. And, you know, I'll just throw a couple things out there. Those questions, there were a couple um, that were planned, but uh, a lot of those were just questions that I came up with on the spot. It's easier when somebody's uh, promoting their book, too, because you can kind of just, you know, well, what got you to write this book? And what are some reactions to the book so far? And 
Well, you think about writing another book. Like, I mean, they kind of come naturally. So I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, and again, I wanted to do it at seven, but he's been so booked up. I think he wanted to get it done earlier in the day. So we switched it to 6 p.m. Eastern. Uh, the show hasn't been on that long. So um, got a late start today again. So my apologies on that. Powerchat.live slash the Ralph Retort. I'll turn the TTS back 